Podcast New York. What's up, Dueling Decades? This is Wax. Peace to all you guys, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Will it be the 90s or the 80s? Beanie Babies or Crack Babies? Will it be Nirvana or Madonna? Maybe Britney, maybe Whitney. Do you like new metal or new wave? Dave Grohl or Super Dave? I don't know. But now the battle begins. Dueling Decades. Let's see who wins. Dueling Decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York studios, it's the all-new Dueling Decades, the adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy because it's your history. We just fight for it. I am Mark James, and this week we have for you a horrific horror-themed duel where I will be hacking and slashing my way through 1977 alongside the other duelers and the decades they will be fighting for. First off, with the eerie picks from the 80s, say hello to Man Crush. What's up? Welcome to another week of Dueling Decades, and that's right, I have horror from 1987. Great year, maybe. Also joining us on the panel, with all the best nightmares of the 90s, it's the incomparable Mike Ranger. Hello everyone, I'm Mike Ranger, representing Horror of 1997, and it's going to be Hortastic. <laughs> oh, I like what you do. And as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. So this week's guest judge is the lead vocalist from the hard and heavy horror-loving band, We're Wolves. Their new single, Wasteland, is available now on all streaming platforms. All rise and welcome Judge AJ Diaferio. Woo! What up, dude? Full face paint, too. If you're not watching the video, which will be available on YouTube, and you're listening, you're missing out. I aim to please. I aim to please. (laughs) I actually, I found a, uh, a coin, so we're good. Oh, that works too. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie after all five rounds, we will go to a final wild card round. Remember, duelers, to review the show, listen, subscribe, and play along at home. It's time for more Dueling Decades. All right, let's go right down to our guest judge, AJ Diaferio, for the coin toss. Who's getting heads? Who's getting tails? Uh, what what uh, kind of coin do you got there? I have a quarter. Quarter. <laughs> All right. I guess I'll I went go into for... my wife's purse and I got a quarter. <laughs> <laughs> Who has coins anymore? Apparently, my wife. She's <laughs> <laughs> playing at the arcade. Yeah, you never know. All right. This week, the coin toss will be between Mike Ranger and Man Crush. Uh, Mike Ranger, why don't you call it in the air? I think I'll go for a little bit of head, Mark. <laughs> Tails it is. Ooh. Oh, all right, man crush. You take control of the board and get to select our first category. All right, so let's knock this one out. <laughs> let's go October 3rd, 1987. Yeah, sometimes when you make these picks, you're met with a do I want to win this round 
or do I just want to take whatever you find? And in this case, it's basically whatever I found. I, I actually, I mentioned this show last year when I selected a straight to syndication show called Freddy's Nightmares. And I was pretty sure, I, I'm pretty sure that I bashed it back then. So I can't all of a sudden make this sound any better than it actually was. That being said, I did watch the first two episodes of the series last night and I was bored to death. So if that's what they were trying to accomplish, then job well done. Maybe somebody likes this. I don't know. It just wasn't for me. It is so, definitely not Friday the 13th, the series. All right. So, so so, what we got here is another straight to syndication television series uh, banking on a famous horror name without actually including anything from that movie franchise. In the series, it, it was initially going to be called The 13th Hour. But since the show was obviously was ass crap, they decided to use the name, like AJ just mentioned, Friday the 13th, the series, <laughs> with the sole motivation of tricking all of us into thinking that this show was about Jason Voorhees and friends. I, I Well, here's the thing. Frank Mancuso Jr., he produced several of the Friday the 13th movies. So I, I guess he had the right to use the name, and he did. I don't know really if that's how it goes, but. That's what happened. But uh, the series, they tricked people for three seasons, uh, ran for 72 episodes before being canceled. And I can't speak to all 72 episodes, but I gave up after the first two. The first episode was about a possessed doll, which was kind of cool. But then it had uh, two cousins that inherited this house from an uncle that they never knew. And the, the two cousins didn't know each other. And the male cousin basically is hitting on the female cousin for the first like 10 minutes. It's just like, it's very weird. And then the second episode is about a fucking evil pen. And then I tapped out. I was like, <laughs> I can't do this. Uh, but yeah, Friday the 13th, the series. Good call, man. Nice. All right, Mike Ranger, what do you have for the TV round? Well, Mark, on uh, March 10th, 1997, on the WB Network, premiered Buffy the Vampire Slayer, starring Sarah Michelle Gellar and launching her into worldwide fame. The series was based off the 1992 film of the same name, uh, the series was created by Josh Whedon and followed main character Buffy Summers, the latest in the line of vampire hunters known as Slayers. Uh, the Slayers, as well as the Chosen, battle against demons, vampires, and other forces of darkness. Uh, the series concluded in May of 2003, giving us seven seasons and 144 episodes, but has numerous spinoffs from TV to comics and games. Probably the biggest of those was Angel that ran for about five, se uh, five seasons itself. And wasn't it fun two years later when show star Allison Hannigan taught us a new way of playing hot cross buns with a flute? <laughs> Buffy the Vampire Slayer, though not, not a tops of the ratings at the time, but still a pop culture phenomenon. I, I actually, I watch that show like religiously. I, I watch it pretty much every time before bed. It's, I bounce back and forth between that and the X-Files. Yeah, X-Files is my shit. Well, yeah, um, I mean... Yeah, especially the earlier ones when it was very dark. I, and Mark hates when I go off on tangents, but the earlier first couple seasons, they're amazing, fantastic. Yeah, then they started getting like odd towards the end when Mulder, like you know, the whole contract thing, and they brought in like other people, and it got weird. But we don't talk about that. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, it's fine. It's still we, great. we don't we don't bring up Robert Patrick, <laughs> <laughs> who just had a role in uh, The Walking Dead. Yeah. Well, that's all right. He's only the T1000. Uh, that's it. <laughs> nothing else. He's never been anything else. Maybe Johnny Cash's dad, but nothing else. 
All right, guys, so for my television selection, we're going to go to a little review by Paul Henninger from the Gannett News Service. It says, The Spell is not an exploitation film. The first half of NBC's big event on February 20th is occupied by The Spell, a world premiere TV movie starring Lee Grant, James Olsen, Susan Myers, and Helen Hunt, a fat teenage girl with the ability to conjure up powers to inflict illness on her enemies, smacks of the current wave of witchcraft movies. Not so, said executive producer Dick Berg. He admitted that it is a modern gothic in content, but that it works without gimmickry. Although, there is a little bit of gimmicks in the film. It's a, it's a family story, he says, that it can stand on its own. I've never been involved with one of those exploitation films before. We got into this one because we thought it was some damn good writing. Berg credited the screenplay to Brian, to Brian Taggart as being full-blown. Now, Brian Taggart would go on to eventually write episodes of V and Poltergeist 3, and he claims he wrote the script from this one before he watched the movie Carrie. I'm going to throw the bullshit flag on that one. So, Susan Myers makes her TV debut as the 15-year-old daughter of Lee Grant and James Olsen, that because of her obesity, she is teased by school chums and even develops a hatred of her prettier younger sister, played by Helen Hunt. There are a half a dozen incidences in which Susan demonstrates her powers, and the special effects makes them very theatrical. But there's an overcoming social problem at the base under her happiness, which is solved with an old-fashioned formula to give it an up-ending. That's what we all love in our TV, in our made-for-TV horror movies. Nice, feel-good ending, right? So that's Spellbound, February 20th, 1977, on NBC. Let's kick it down to AJ Diaferio for the ruling on the television round. Uh, <laughs> I think you guys know where I stand on this one. So, <laughs> Mike Ranger, I got to give it to you, man. Oh, thank you. What did thank you, you see? So you got the Friday Thirteenth. You knew it as soon as I was saying it. Were you a fan? Were you a fan of that series? <laughs> um, the funny thing is, is I, I, I vaguely remember watching it as like a, a little kid, like at my grandma's house, whenever my parents would, like dropped me off in the city. And I have fond memories. I remember like it took place in, I want to say like a train station. Is that right? Or a subway? I, I think they're all different. I think all the episodes are. No, but I mean like the main, the main place where they were like. Oh, you got I mean, me. I mean, they're all let's, let's let's face facts. They're all basically Are You Afraid of the Dark, where they have like a main yeah. location and they tell a fucking story. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 like that. But um, yeah, I I never had the inclining to like go back in and actually like rewatch it. But I remember it scared me as a kid. Yeah, I get. And there's parts like the doll. Like I said before, that one was okay, but then it just it fizzled. But the other one was still like a pen. Like we're 60 minutes talking. Like I feel, I feel like you need to power through it. You need to commit and go through all of them. <laughs> well, plus you can't find if if it was in HD, that's the other thing. Maybe I would have been more into it. Go to YouTube. There, most of them are up there. It's hard to find. You gotta buy it on DVD. Nobody's got it streaming, so put yourself Is it just through like that. a random person that like posted all of them. That, like I th yeah, probably. Yeah. There was a playlist and there was a lot of them. Actually, like went home, them all. made sure to videotape all of them. One day, went through his garage, found a box, and said, "I'm going to convert these to <laughs> to YouTube quality." <laughs> Lots of people are going to want this. Yeah, the the quality is so shitty. 
but so I think terrible. If I'm if I'm correct, mm-hmm. I think you can actually stream Freddy's Nightmare like on Shutter. Yeah. yeah, that's up there. That's actually not that bad. It this does not hold a candle to Freddy's Nightmares. I think I attempted to watch it for like five minutes and I couldn't get through it. What, Freddy's Nightmares? No, I, I just couldn't oh. do it. There's a few good episodes, but they're all different. I mean, you got to go through the whole series to dig out what's good and what's not, which may be the same thing with Friday the 13th, but maybe I'll, maybe I'll give it a shot. All right. You do that and I'll watch Friday the 13th. We have a deal. We have a deal. (laughs) And then you and I can converse on that together. Yes. We'll see how bad you, you find (laughs) the worst episode and I'll find the worst episode and we'll discuss Uh, uh, that is a, that is a deal. (laughs) Yes. And then we, then we can dig deeper. We'll go to like 21 jump street or something. Cause there's some gems in that one. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Especially (laughs) with Richard Grego. Oh, those are great. They're like 35 in high school. All right. Sorry, Mark. All right, Mike Ranger. You picked up a point in the first round. You take control of the board. What category are we going with next? Well, Mark, I think we're going to go with news because when you can't find any news, you need to create your own. And that's kind of what I did here. I decided to bend the rules and just find news within news. And where do you find news within news? You do it in a newspaper. So I went over to newspapers.com and I found a review in the Daily News on October 24th, 1997, covering the Simpsons annual Treehouse of Horror titled, They're the Ghoul Standard of TV Comedy. Simpsons Halloween Treehouse is a treat. The review gives the Simpsons ninth ninth Treehouse of of Horror episode a four-star rating. This year's trilogy of stories were Omega Man, Homer Shelters in a Bomb Shelter, Flyvers fly, Bart, Bart's molecules are are mixed with a fly. Easy Bake Coven, Marge is accused of witchcraft in 17th century Salem. The article goes on to praise the subtle homages of the pop culture history and goes on to follow, goes as far as to say that the opening and closing credits are quote funnier than most other comedies on TV. The first Treehouse of Horror episode aired on October 5th, 1990, and to date there have been 31 Treehouse of Horror episodes and are widely regarded as some of the most anticipated Halloween horror television episodes of the year. And they now have Funko Pops. Yeah, that's right. Look at that. Everything's come full circle. (laughs) Who doesn't have a Funko Pop these days? We don't. (laughs) I don't have one. We don't have one yet. Dueling Decades doesn't have a Funko Pop. I'm sure you can get one pretty easily. My daughter's trying to get rid of, like, I bought them for her, like, five years ago when she was, like, 10 or 11, and now she wants to get rid of them all. We have tons of them. Yeah, you can repurpose them. Like, I have my Jerry Garcia Funko Pop, and he fell down off the shelf and the sunglasses broke off. Looks just like Kenny Rogers now. (laughs) (laughs) I actually have someone sending me a custom one of myself. Oh, Oh, that's That's awesome. Do you know who who it is? Um, It's this girl, uh, Emily. She actually, she makes them for, like, a lot of different bands out there. She's done, like, Ice on Kills. She's done... uh, Motionless and White, uh, she's done A Day to Remember and Falling in Reverse, and now she's doing me. That wow. is awesome. I want to be done in a dog. Excited about it. Like, I, was, I don't know if you can tell in the background, but. You got a few. Yeah. A few. Got a few. Got a few toys laying around the house. We all do. We're all guilty. Yeah. All right, Man Crush, what did you bring for the news round? All right, so let me unpack this one. So unlike Mike, I, I found a news story, but it was just it has to be developed a little bit. Not as good as the 800 pounds of cocaine that I had last week, but it's still a good story. All right, so let's go uh, March 13th, 1987. We get a deserving sequel here from 1987. And this time, though, it's not something that was done out of this, like 
because they wanted to out of the love of it, but it was something that was done out of necessity. Uh, because when you look at Sam Raimi, he made the evil dead back in earlier in the eighties. He basically, he was just trying to catch fire at the time. He was trying to create an over the top horror flick and out of the gate, that movie did horrible at the box office. It was listed on the UK's video nasty list. It was given an X rating and obviously little screening around the country. However, all those things that actually ended up being like a positive that and the severe brutality of the movie actually ended up making the movie a huge success. And when I was like five, when this came out on rental in 1983, I don't really know if this is the reason why, but I would venture to guess that it got around because of word of mouth. It was probably like the biggest asset. So now the studios, they're, they're all interested in Sam Raimi and he signs on to do a movie called crime wave. Uh, matter of fact, if you go to our Facebook, facebook.com, uh, www.facebook.com forward slash dueling decades, every day we put up the new movies that have been released. And just a couple of days ago, we had crime wave on there. And I won't get too deep in a crime wave, but go see it. it Ramey, Cohen Brothers, Bruce Campbell, Brian James. Enough said, just go see that one. But it flopped hard at the box office. Budget was blown. Embassy Pictures, their executives got involved. So you know that's always shit. They hacked the movie up. And that was all she wrote. So as quick as like Sam Raimi's filmmaking career had taken off, now it seemed like it was over. This is 1985 now. So I just wanted to add that little tidbit before getting into the story itself because I think it's important to show how like evil dead two had to succeed. I mean, we talk a lot about like movie studios, but careers do actually hang in the balance a lot of times when these guys do movies. So, and I found all this interesting because I was going to go to film school until I spoke to somebody, actually a filmmaker during my orientation who told me you're only as good as your last work. You live out of your briefcase and you're only as good as your last work and it can end in a second. And I didn't enroll in school. I ended up going for fucking like gym science or some shit in my first semester. Terrible. Anyhow, uh, so this article, it's out of the Los Angeles Times by Jack Matthews. And again, it's about the movie. Everyone loves it. Evil Dead 2. And the article here, it's titled How Evil Dead 2 Dodged the Kiss of Death in X. And here's the abridged tale here. Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn, is now playing in a theater near you. It has no rating. And though parents are warned in a minuscule print that it may be too strong for children under the age of 17, there are no restrictions at the box office. Any kid who has a price of admission and is tall enough to reach a ticket counter can get into what the village voice is calling Pee-wee's Haunted Playhouse. There are decapitations, axe killings, gore galore. How did this slide by and into 340 theaters nationwide? Evil Dead 2 was financed by DG. Of course, it's D. Laurinaitis Entertainment Group. Until recently, it was scheduled for American release by DG. But when newspaper ads started showing up in papers last week, the name of the, re the, name of the releasing company was no longer DG. It was something called Rosebud Releasing Corp. Alex D. Benedetti, who now we know is the son-in-law of the DEG owner, Dino D. Laurinaitis. Uh, they made him a, an executive producer of Evil Dead 2. He's also the president of Rosebud. And he said that uh, DEG sold them the American rights to the movie because DEG and Sam Raimi couldn't agree on cuts for the film. The film was never submitted to the movie rating board, but everyone involved in making this movie and the marketing department agree that there is no question this would have gotten an X rating. So how did a company like Rosebud get the American releasing rights when they have no distribution network and, and managed to book it in 343 theaters and do all the advertising? Well, 
DG claims that they booked all the theaters and adverts prior to selling the rights to Rosebud. When asked if DG would get paid for those services, we were met with, and I quote, that's a personal question. I am a private company and I don't have to go into that kind of detail. That's from Alex D. Benedetti. Sam Raimi was contracted to create an R-rated film for DG when it became apparent that it couldn't be trimmed effectively, the deal was made. We could have forced him to edit it down to an R rating, but the movie would have been 62 minutes long, said Lawrence Gleason, president of marketing at DG. Although this backdoor approach looks to have succeeded, MPAA president Jack Valenti says there are no changes being contemplated in the rating system. And obviously, as we all know now, we got NC-17 in 1990. And now if you look at IMDb and you look up I, uh, Evil Dead 2, it's actually listed as NC-17. Right. So Raimi goes back to his roots. He basically, even though they deny this, he basically did a soft reboot of Evil Dead 2. And then he went on to have a fantastic filmmaking career. It was that important and he did it right. Wow. I never knew that about Evil Dead 2. No rating. Can you imagine? That's crazy. Can we just all talk about the fact that we're, uh, is anybody else besides me excited about the fact that he's going to helm uh, Doctor Strange too? Dude, yeah, oh, dude, that's going to be really cool to see what his his take is on that. Well, I mean, I mean, they're going in like a semi horror direction, so I'm excited about, right. it, especially for the Bruce Campbell cameo. Did you guys see on uh, Instagram he posted uh, the script, uh, his part? No. So basically, he's going. Uh, Doctor Strange like appears in this like like misty forest. And he turns around and sees a guy with like, uh, here's like the sound of a chainsaw starting up. No way. <laughs> and Bruce Campbell <laughs> is standing there as like this disheveled man. And uh, he's supposed to like ask uh, Dr. Strange who he is. And he says that he's here looking for this book, like this mystical <laughs> book and stuff like that. And he goes, does it by chance have a face on it? <laughs> I'm like so excited. If that scene actually happens, I will shit oh myself. Oh my god. I can't wow. see but that's Disney. Is Disney really gonna put uh Bruce Campbell in one of their movies? But it's Marvel. <laughs> yeah, I know. If they do that, that puts everything that happened in Evil Dead, Army of Darkness, all in the MCU. Yeah. That's pretty wild. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't give a shit, but I just like it's Disney. Who does the Evil Dead comics? Is it Marvel? I have oh. one upstairs. I don't feel like running up to get it, but I feel like it is Marvel. <laughs> I can Google that. All I got to say is if they finally go and actually do that, and then years later we get actual Secret Wars, they better bring Ash in the Secret Wars then. How could you not? Yeah, come on. <laughs> that would you be amazing. <laughs> Even just the, like, just the fact that we're getting uh, a superhero, another superhero film directed by Sam Raimi That's really that cool. actually is going to have a horror element to it. I'm, I'm just excited about that, to see him come back. I'm waiting for the James Gunn Suicide Squad too. James James Gunn is the man, but uh, it looks like uh, Dark Horse makes it. You can tell already, already from the trailer that he's got it. Ten times better than the other one. Yeah, there's there's no way they're gonna allow that to get screwed up. I hope. I hope. <laughs> I don't want to get too far off, but and you can cut this if you want, Mark. But I watched the uh, the Batman trailer last night. Oh, yeah. Looks pretty badass. Dark. Looks dark, but it looks. It looks cool. All right. Sorry, Mark. Are you team Pattinson? I wasn't in the beginning, but it completely changed my mind. Well, keep in mind, like in 1989, everybody talked shit about Michael Keaton. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, like I said to these guys after watching the, uh, I don't even know if you caught it, but I wrote, yeah, I'm kind of digging uh, Robert Smith as Batman. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of looked like him in there. 
<laughs> did. All right, guys. So uh, let's take a look at what I brought for the news round. You know, so often in horror movies, filmmakers will choose a location to shoot that already has some spooky history behind it. My news story tells us a dark tale that actually proves to be in reverse of that and shows us that truth indeed is stranger than fiction. So we'll go over to the Star Tribune in Minneapolis, Minnesota, June 28, 1977, where the headline reads, Duluth Woman, Nurse Slain. Elizabeth Congdon, 83 years old and one of Minnesota's richest people, was found slain in her Duluth mansion early Monday morning, a pillow smothering her face. Her nurse, Velma Patella, was also killed in the 39-room house. She had been beaten over the head with an 8-inch brass candlestick and died at a pool of her own blood along the stairway landing. Police said that last night that they had no suspects on the case, which has all of the elements of the opening of chapters of a Agatha Christie mystery. So let's go to another article I found on the exact same day. This one's over in the St. Cloud Times, though. It says Condon's killer could be anyone. We just don't know who we're looking for, says a Duluth detective. Everyone is in a suspect. I'm a suspect. You're a suspect. Bodies of the two women were found Monday morning at the palatial Congdon Mansion. In 1972, the estate was the site of a suspenseful film. You'll Like My Mother, a thriller which included a killing. Most of the movie, which stars Patty Duke, was filmed inside the 39-room Congdon home. So at this point, you're wondering, who the hell killed Mrs. Congdon? Well, this is where the tale turns even darker. Come to find out, she was murdered, and she was murdered by her adopted daughter, Marjorie, along with the help of her, of her husband, Roger Caldwell. So Marjorie was set to receive $8 million at the time of her mother's death, and she had promised her husband, Roger, about $2 million of that. Based on evidence found at the scene later, they were arrested. Roger was... Uh, first to trial, and he was convicted in 1978. Marjorie, although, was acquitted in 1979. Now, the Minnesota Supreme Court overturned Caldwell's decision in 1983, and rather than whisk, risk a acquittal and a retrial, the prosecution offered him a plea deal in exchange for a confession. He confessed to both murders on July 5, 1983, and was released. He committed suicide on May 18, 1988. In his suicide note, he claimed he was innocent of the killing of Elizabeth Congdon and never got any of the money promised from Marjorie. So I give you a tale that is so twisted and it's just out there, guys. You got to go look at this up. It's the murder of Elizabeth Congdon on the set, ironically, of the movie You'll Like My Mother, June 1977. Ooh, good one. Yeah, I told you guys that this one gets dark, so <laughs> let's toss it over to AJ DiAferio for the ruling on the news round. I mean, I really, really wanted to give it to you, Man Crush, because I fucking love anything to do with Evil Dead. Uh, but, Mark, I got to give it to you, man. Wow. That's, a fucking, that's an awesome story. <laughs> yeah, I just I stumbled upon it and it got really bizarre. And as I read the article about the murders and how it was in this house that was filmed in a horror that was used for a horror movie. So I started to do my research and I'm like, did, did anyone ever find out who killed this woman? And yeah, it was her adopted daughter who was uh, one of like three adopted daughters. Marjorie, of course, was the black sheep of the family, they say. Well, that's you know, if you watch enough uh, forensic files, you can kind of see where that was going. Yeah. 
All right, guys, so I pick up a point, tie this game heading into our final one-point round, and I take control of the board. You know what, guys? Let's stop beating around the bush. We're going straight to the movies round. So my selection is a film that I vividly remember watching on cable, on cable TV and seeing what would become one of my all-time favorite horror movie endings. Is so it Meatballs? Watched... <laughs> it is not Meatballs. Oh, all right. So I watched this movie again the other night, and I was actually able to find a copy of it on YouTube ripped straight from a VHS tape, commercials and all, from a showing on Commander USA's Groovy Movies. Nice. which is probably what I was watching it on back in the day. So it was fantastic. And on this show, all the time we talk about picks have legs. Well, this movie has over 40,000 of them. In rural Arizona, countless killer tarantulas are migrating through a farm town, killing everything in their path. The town's veterinarian will do everything in his power to survive and stop the onslaught. Starring a man whose face is now synonymous with horror, but maybe not for the right reasons, Mr. William Shatner. I unleash on you 1977's The Kingdom of the Spiders. Over 5,000 live tarantulas were actually wrangled for this film at the cost of $50,000. Damn. That's $224,000 in 2021, in case you're wondering, kids, just on live spiders, mind you. Now, the spiders themselves, they caused some production issues. Due to the cannibalistic natures of tarantula, each spider had to be kept in separate containers. And since the spiders are, well, naturally shy around humans, for the scenes where it looked like they were attacking the people, they had to coerce them by blowing jets of air at the spiders to get them to move towards the people. That's actually how they used to get Hulk Hogan to move around on the set of Suburban Commando. <laughs> <laughs> That's a true story. <laughs> So overall, it's one of the better animal attacks movies, I think, of the 1970s, despite the huge plot hole that totally forgets that tarantula venom is not dangerous to humans. Don't they just make you itchy? Yeah, they just make you itchy. That's all. So <laughs> nice. producer Igor, Ego Cantor hinted in Fang at a Fangoria interview that he thought his film was uh, being copied by the famous film Arachnophobia in 1990. Uh, but he said... I thought it was a copy, but what do you do? Go and sue Spielberg? Of course not. So he kind of left that one slide. So I give you The Kingdom of the Spiders with William Shatner, 1977. They're I kind of wish that William Shatner was in Arachnophobia because that was a far superior film. Yeah, and if you've oh, never seen Kingdom of the Spiders, the ending is just awesome. I'm not going to spoil it for you. You can just go on YouTube, look up Kingdom of the Spiders ending. Either you're going to love it or hate it, but it's dark. It's I fantastic. have arachnophobia, so I can't, I can't watch <laughs> arachnophobia. I'm pretty sure I actually got arachnophobia from watching oh. arachnophobia. As a <laughs> like that scene in the shower. Yes. <sighs> Do you remember the, all the ads? Like in the early 90s, was it 1990 or 92 when they came out? All the comic books had arachnophobia ads like on the back cover. Yeah. And it just had that single spider. Hanging down. Oh, nope. man. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Not going to see that. Like, I wonder if that hurt their box office totals of all the people that were like, no, I fucking hate spiders. I'm not going to see that movie. Fuck that. You know what's crazy about that movie? It's a comedy. Yeah. Really? It's a comedy. It's a dark comedy. There's nothing fucking funny about that movie. <laughs> it's, got, it's got John Goodman in it. 
Yeah, it's got John Goodman and Jeff Daniels. It's there's still nothing funny about that film. Oh, I can't make it through it. Ah, just thinking about it. These steps on the one. Oh. Kingdom of the Spiders, they drive over a, a dozen of them and you just see them all splotting and oh, it's horrible. When you said spider wrangler, I was just picturing like somebody running around with a little cowboy hat on. In a lasso, but it's a very tiny yeah. lasso. <laughs> Get over here. I actually know a scorpion wrangler. <laughs> what does he wear? He is an ex like amateur wrestler. And uh, he's exactly what you'd imagine he looks like inside of your head. Wow. <laughs> like whatever Jeez. you're picturing, you're right. I met him on the set of a music video for like this uh, rapper kid that my friend was uh, filming. And well, needless to say, we're Facebook friends now. So if I ever need <laughs> any scorpion strangles, <laughs> you never know. I actually, when uh, I was in Iraq, we caught a scorpion and we named him Mackenzie. We caught him in a water bottle. Was it a camo spider? It was uh, It was a black. No, it wasn't a spider. It was a scorpion. It was a black uh, black scorpion. And uh, this thing was so stupid. Like, we tried to feed it all the time, and it just would never eat. And then it just died. So we had to let it out. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're fucking cool looking in person. Yeah, but they'll fuck you up, though. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 100%. They're still cool as shit looking. Yeah. They would they would stab through a water bottle, like directly through it with that tail. Wow. Insane. Imagine what they would do to your skin. Nope. And this guy, and this fucking guy is just grabbing it by the tail. Yeah. I'm like watching this guy the whole time, and he's got one that's like the size of my fist. And he's just like picking it up by the tail and putting it in the little he had like a what you would keep like cream cheese in. <laughs> like one of those kind of containers. <laughs> And I'm just like, that guy's going to become my friend. <laughs> Stay out of the French onion dip. That's a <laughs> All right, Mike Ranger, what did you bring for the movies round? Well, Mark, uh, released on December 12th, 1997, with a runtime of 120 minutes, a rating of R, a budget of $24 million, and a gross of $172 million, was the Wes Craven-directed Scream 2. Now, Wes Craven releases Scream at the end of 96, and it's still playing in January, making tons of money. Then he produces The Wishmaster that sees a 97 release, and then he finishes off with Scream 2. So it's a big year for Wes Craven, as well as for screen, uh, Scream writer Kevin Williamson, who also releases I Know What You Did Last Summer in 97. So you got Nev Campbell, David Arquette, Courtney Cox, Jamie Kennedy Returns, and we get more stars like Jada Pinkett, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Jerry O'Connell... Lori Metcalf, Omar Epps, Tori Spelling, Luke Wilson. So it's a solid sequel, the top 100 soundtrack for the year. Uh, we would later see Scream 3 and 4 and uh, TV series. Part 5 supposedly went into production in 2020. So 1997 has some decent horror movies, but really, it was all about Scream. Wow. And there's a glory hole scene. There is? You remember that? Yeah, and then when the guy goes into the bathroom in the movie theater. And, oh, yeah. I and the dude about stabs that. him right through the... Yeah. Two. He yeah. just stabbed in the head. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's, funny. that's right. Omar Epps, right? Be careful of those glory holes, gents. <laughs> Never know what's on the other side. I about Scream 1. I'm like, who went in the bathroom? Henry Winkler? <laughs> <laughs> it's a deleted scene. All this talk of glory holes makes me wondering what you have for the movies round, man crush. Uh, oh, first, let me preface by saying uh, I didn't go Lost Boys here because it's been done uh i yeah. wanted to go a little bit deeper so we go uh may 1st 1987 and let me just say like i 
don't normally select sequels unless I totally think that they're well done. Some movies out there, they don't even deserve sequels, but in the 80s especially, we were served with sequels, after sequels, and it just happened all the time. But there are movies that deserve sequels, and those sequels, they have to be something of merit, and they have to go above and beyond what the original was in order to make it a success. This particular film, I think it definitely falls into that category. The original for this movie, it came out in 1982, and it's actually it's a phenomenal anthology and I may trigger some people with this, but I actually prefer the sequel in, to the original in this case. I got nothing bad to say about the sequel, the original that I'm talking about, but I think the second one just resonated more with me. It was on television more, and I feel like all the stories that were on it were memorable. I could remember them all. The original, I remember them, but it's it's fuzzy. Anyway, at the box office, this movie did about $14 million. It's about $33 million in 2021 which isn't too shabby for an R-rated horror film in 1987, pretty average box office. But the names associated with this movie are uh, that of legend. You got George Romero, Stephen King, and Tom Savini, whom I brought up uh, a couple episodes back when I had Dawn of the Dead, so you can check that one out. You also get the future star and Greg Nicotero working on the makeup, which is very early in his career. And actually, he actually did uh, makeup in Evil Dead 2 as well which I didn't mention before, but the biggest difference from the original, they, they kind of, they went with lesser known actors in the sequel here. Instead of five segments, which you got in the original, you only got three. And since they had like a limited budget, Stephen King and crew, they had to cut two segments. They were originally planned. And interesting, one of those segments, it was called cat from hell. It was eventually picked up and made for uh, tales from the dark side. Remember the movie in 1990? Yeah. And just to spark your memory, that was the one where old uh, Buster Poindexter, he plays a hitman, and some rich old dude pays him to kill his cat. You Remember that one? So that was actually supposed to be in this movie right here, but they had to cut it. Uh, so if you're in the mood for like a vicious wood statue that scalps his prey, the love child of the blog, the blog, the blob, and the toxic Avenger, comic books, meat-eating Venus flytraps, neighborhood bullies that get what they deserve in the end, cheating floozies that are continually thanked for a ride, then you should go out and grab yourself a copy of Creepshow 2, nice. May 1st, 1987. Fantastic. All right, let's throw it down to AJ Diaferio for the ruling on the movies round. Oh, man, I was so ready to, like, I already knew my pick ahead of time, and then you came out of left field, <laughs> Man Crush, with Creep Show too, and that oh, movie has so such a special place in my heart. Yeah. I used to watch Creep Show one and two just over and over again, and I absolutely agree with you that Creep Show two is superior. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't get it because if you look at reviews, it seems like everybody's opposite, but everybody I talk to one on one agrees with the fact that creep show two is the better i, yeah. I don't know I'll, I'll go one i'll be the guy that's different here <laughs> oh you were that guy All right. yeah i'm well, that guy you like one better yeah but i grew up with one we had it on betamax oh. yeah i'm sorry but the indian thing just does it for me i love that that's like one of my oh, favorite so ones good scalps his head i really wanted to go with you mike but i'm gonna go with man crush on this one because creep show anything creep show is a gem yeah so amazing all right, Man Crush, you pick up a point, tying this game at one point each, heading into our first two-point round, and you have control of the board. Where are we going, man? 
All right. So since AJ is here, I think we'll finish up with music. Uh, you kind of screwed me a little bit because I was trying to play the strategy a little bit and go hot products when it wasn't a two point round. But let's do it anyway. Let's go October 5th, 1987. I jumped all over this one because it was near and dear to me. I remember playing the shit out of this game back in the, the, the Commodore 64 days. Uh, this was actually made by Lucasfilms Games at the time, which is now LucasArts. And every title they put out in the late 80s was amazing, which you would figure from something that was George Lucas backed and bankrolled at that point. But this was a graphic adventure game. And for 1987, this was like way ahead of its time. The graphics were amazing for 1987. But if you look at it now, like I, I watch all these videos of it, it kind of makes you sad because it's they just look okay. I mean, it's 1987, so it is what it is. But if you're a fan of B-movie horror, this game would have been right up your alley. That's exactly what they intended this one for. This was one of the first adventure games that I remember playing where you didn't have to type in the commands in your adventure game. Everything on it was point and click. So if you wanted to pick something up, you just went to pick up and you clicked on it and there were 14 other actions you could select. For a nine-year-old, this was out of this just knocked out of the park for me. Also, they introduced cutscenes to the world. So you'd be plugging away at the game, and then it would just stop and show you what all the evil people were doing inside the house. Uh, if they were talking shit about one of another one another, which they did in the game. Uh, if they left a door open, it was actually pretty cool. I'm not a big gamer now. Mike, are they still using cutscenes in games? I would say that now. 60% of the game is a cutscene. All right. So it all started right here with this game. And the game that I'm talking about is uh, Maniac Mansion. Uh, it's a, the game that tells the story of a young man named Dave, whose girlfriend Sandy has been kidnapped by the evil Dr. Edison and imprisoned in the Edison family's mansion. The story, it's convoluted, but it's 1987 and it's a video game supposedly for kids. It's a mad scientist. He kidnaps a young girl because of an evil meteor. And then threatens to perform experiments on her brain. You have like weird man-eating plants. You have mummies. You have bizarre characters that kind of look like walking French ticklers with holes on their chests. It's fucking weird. Uh, there's a warning when you go into the house that any trespasser will be horribly mutilated. I mean, what nine-year-old would not dig this game? I mean, I just don't understand. Uh, to play the game, this was the cool part about the game, though. You'd play it. You play as Dave, obviously. We get to choose two of his friends to accompany Dave into the house. And each player has their own talent. So you could swap between characters to do any of the challenges they might be good at. So depending on what characters you chose, the game is played completely different. And this is 1987. This is not like we're talking about a 2021 game where that's common. This was like a big deal. This is running on floppy disks on a freaking Commodore 64. But way ahead of its time. It's Maniac Mansion. Oh, one last thing. This actually did get its own TV show as well. That's right. Uh, I think it was on the Family Channel in the early yeah. 90s. And Joe Flaherty was the uh, the main star of that one. So you know it's good. Yeah. <laughs> it's Maniac Mansion. All right, Mike Ranger. What do you have for the hot products round? Well, on October 2nd, 1997, game developer and publisher Konami released Castlevania Symphony of the Night for the Sony PlayStation with a mature rating and an SRP of $59.99. The follow-up sequel to Castlevania Rondo of Blood takes place four years later and reintroduces non-linear level design, exploration, and role-playing elements first explored in Simon's Quest. 
The sleeper hit went on to sell over half a million copies worldwide. Castlevania Symphony of the Night was awarded PlayStation Game of the Year by EGM Magazine, as well as Best Sequel, and is widely regarded as one of the best games of all time, and has been re-released across multiple consoles over the years. So, Castlevania, Symphony of the Night. Wow. Well, over in 1977, I didn't have any, you know, fancy video games or anything. I actually had to go with a book. I don't know if you guys remember those things, but... uh, So, My Hot Product's a book, and it's a book that actually every horror fan knows of, regardless if you've read the 447-page novel. In late September of 1974, author Stephen King was looking for a change of setting for his new book, since his last few books had been taking place in what would become his usual setting, his home state of Maine. And published on in January of 1977, I give you The Shining. It would be King's third published novel and his first hardback bestseller, and it made him into the household horror name that we all know. King and his wife, Tabby, checked into the Grand Stanley Hotel in Colorado in 1972, and he said, we were the only guests, as it turns out. The following day, they were going to close the place down for the winter. Wandering through the corridors, I thought it seemed the perfect setting and the archetypal setting for a ghost story. That night, I dreamed of my three-year-old son running through the corridors, looking back over his shoulder, his eyes wide, screaming. He was being chased by a fire hose. I woke up with a tremendous jerk, sweating all over, within an inch of falling out of bed. I got up, lit up a cigarette, sat in a chair, looked out the window at the Rockies, and by the time the cigarette was done, I had the bones of the book firmly set in my mind. The Shining would go on to sell over one million copies, and would of course go on to be further immortalized in the 1980 film, a TV series, a play, and yes, even an opera. The story eventually got a sequel called Dr. Sleep, which was penned by Stephen King, and it got its own film in 2019. So, my hot product, I give you The Shining, published January of 1977. Oh, wow. I guess this just goes to me, huh? Yeah, let's kick it over to AJ. What do you got, man? Uh, I'm just going to say... <laughs> <laughs> I have to go with The Shining. <laughs> I'm sorry. You have any Maniac Mansion toys? Like, maybe like a French tickler standing up back there or anything? Come on, you can't, you can't, beat, you can't beat The Shining. Come on. That's a good even one. Even Doctor Sleep, a sequel, was fantastic. Stephen King, even... Uh, fun story about uh the shiny which i'm sure you guys already know uh that when the film came out uh stephen king actually hated what stanley kubrick did with with it and uh stanley kubrick actually changed the ending of the shining because originally i think it was supposed to burn down and so uh when it came time for uh mike flanagan to go and do the uh the sequel he actually went to stephen king met with him and pitched him what he wanted to do for the end of his story. And Stephen King actually signed off on it because a lot of what he did kind of undid a lot of the stuff that uh, Kubrick did. Wow. I still have not seen the sequel yet. You should see the sequel. You know what? Put off Friday the 13th, the series for a few days, (laughs) go, go sit down and watch Dr. Sleep. You won't be disappointed. Is it over two hours? It's like, Two and ten, maybe. Oh, that's not too. It's really not that long. It's not. 
even the shining is not that long that's it feels like you've been there for weeks oh it it feels like you could read the book in the time it takes to watch the movie exactly (laughs) no it's worth it man I, i would absolutely if i were you i would i would watch that as soon as you can ewan mcgregor's fantastic in it and it's so much fan service yeah ewan mcgregor's awesome in everything Elliot from uh, E.T. actually plays uh, Jack Torrance. Oh, oh, that's and he cast. kills it. He does a fantastic job. What else has he been in since E.T.? Oh, uh, he was in uh, speaking of Mike Flanagan. He was in two of his series. He was in uh, the, the Haunting of Hill House and Bly Manor. Yeah. Henry Thomas. He, he, he's awesome, man. It, it, they did a really good job. Like Mike Flanagan is a true fan of uh of that kind of style of horror and he really plays it very well. Like you can see that, uh, that he would be able to take it on if you watched like Bly Manor or uh, Haunting on Hill House. Like when, when I heard that he was going to direct Dr. Sleep, I, I got really intrigued by it. I really like his work, especially the movie. I don't know if you guys ever saw Hush. I know Hush is Hush. great. Uh, his, his wife, Kate Siegel, uh, they actually write a lot of that, those things together. They, uh, they wrote Hush together. I believe they did uh, Hill House and Bly Manor together. Uh, they they come up with some crazy stories. I'm I'm pretty sure she uh, did some work on uh, on uh, Doctor Sleep as well. Wow! I'll put it on the list. I will put it on the list. I have actually there's not that many movies on my list now because I've knocked most of them out. I'll I'll put it up there. <laughs> put it up there. Trust me, but you'll you'll enjoy it. It's great. Definitely Friday Thirteenth going on there though. But here's the, I was thinking about this as we we're going through the rounds. I have to find an HD version of it though, or at least something that's been mastered. So it doesn't look like complete dog shit. Cause if you try to watch the YouTube ones, it's terrible. I will help you on this quest. <laughs> All right. excellent. <laughs> I will, I will locate somewhere. Someone has rendered it. Someone remember anything that's dog shit. Awful. Somebody out there is worked on restoring it somehow. It's very true. Actually, I th- milk Creek might've put it out. Let me just check. Yeah, that. I think there's a, a DVD box set of it now. Because I've seen it before. Yeah. But I don't remember where I saw it. All right, guys. So I guess we will move on. Uh, I picked up two points in that round, and I take control of the board. But, of course, there's only the music round left, so I'll start this one off. Released in November of 1977, I'm going to give you guys Spectres, the fifth studio album by the Blue Oyster Cult. Not only is this album titled Conjure Up Some Spooky Images, but the album begins and ends with two horror-themed songs. The latter being the final song on the album, Nosferatu, which takes us back to Transylvania for a musical retelling of the tale of the original horror movie. But the album is probably best remembered for the first cut on the album. It's a title that also pays tribute to another horrific icon, Come on, guys. You all know the words. Oh, no. There goes Tokyo. Go, go, Godzilla. The song would go on to become a staple of radio airplay, along with Don't Fear the Reaper, the band's biggest hit, and would become a mainstay of their live show. So Godzilla has been covered in many, many, many times by bands such as Moe, Racer X, Fu Manchu, The Smashing Pumpkins, Sebastian Bach, Double Experience, Fighting Gravity, and probably the most recent by Surge from System of a Down, he covered it for the Godzilla King of the Monsters soundtrack. Oddly enough, that cover of the song would be the first time that Godzilla was actually used in a Godzilla movie. 
Now, side note, if you've ever wondered what the iconic blue oyster cult symbol means, I had to look it up. In Greek mythology, the hook and cross symbol, that's the symbol of Kronos, the king of the titans and the father of Zeus. It's also the alchemical symbol for lead, the heaviest of metals. So I give you the king of the titans, Godzilla, by the blue oyster cult. All right. All right, Mike Ranger, what do you have for the music round? Well, Mark, uh, after Scream released at the end of 96 and reinvigorated the slasher genre, every studio got on the train, and in 1997, Kevin Williamson, writer of Scream, decided to grab one of the four remaining cast members from Party of Five to star in the slasher I Know What You Did Last Summer. But when Jennifer Love Hewitt asked, what are you waiting for? The answer was for someone to show us their boobs. Freddie <laughs> Prince, Ryan Phillippe, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Hook Hand, anybody, somebody's, just take your fucking top off. <laughs> well if we can't get a nice pair of warlocks well at least we can get a quality soundtrack on cd or cassette and october 7 and on october 7th 1997 we got the i know what you did last summer the soundtrack featuring songs by the likes of offspring our lady of peace soul asylum and corn who can forget coolest shakers cover of deep purple's hush one reviewer from the sunbury pennsylvania daily item wrote the columbia release quote Shouldn't be scoffed at. Wow. Yeah, it was a damn good cover. (laughs) (laughs) Kevin O'Hare in the Honolulu Star wrote that songs thrill on I Know soundtrack, despite one track by Typo Negative covering Seals and Croft's Summer Breeze, which he says may be reason enough to either buy or destroy the new soundtrack. Oh, man. (laughs) Do you guys see that meme that goes around? It said uh, Typo Negative sounds like Sylvester Stallone picked up a bass for like 20 minutes. <laughs> you just ruined typo negative for me, man. I'm never gonna get that out of my head. I always said that typo negative sounds like that uh Dracula musical from uh uh safe what what the hell is that movie? Uh Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Yeah. Forgetting Sarah Marshall. It sounds like the uh, Dracula musical that Peter Brennan's trying to write. <laughs> Love that movie. <laughs> Great. Inside of you. Inside <laughs> All right, Man Crush, what did you bring for the music round? All right, so let's go March 22nd, 1987. And last month, I told a story about Cliff Burton and this very band. Uh, you'd have to go back to that episode to listen to the full thing, but it was a story that was taken out from the autobiography of this band's guitarist and co-founder. Long story short, Cliff Burton told this guy that they were going to shit-can Lars Ulrich after the completion of the Damage Inc. tour, and this band was actually opening the opening act for that tour. Obviously... That never happened, and unfortunately, Cliff Burton died during that tour. However, with them being such close friends, it makes a lot of sense that this band would dedicate this album to Cliff Burton. So with that, rest in peace, Cliff. Uh, This one's for you here. So this band, it's their third studio album. It was certified gold, and this really, it put them in the upper echelon, like that big four of thrash metal bands, along with Metallica, Megadeth, and Slayer. So if you're listening to the show for a while, or if you're a thrash metal fan, you obviously already know the band that I'm talking about is going to be Anthrax. And the album that I'm talking about is Among the Living. So how do you tie horror into this? Well, first off, it's not because of Cliff's Cliff's death. Uh, I'll tell you that. However, before we get there, this album, it it contains amazing tracks. got Indians, Caught in a Mosh, NFL, which I always... How do you pronounce NFL? Nice fucking life. Well, no, no, no. It's it's got an actual name to that song. I always called it it's, NFL. It's nice fucking life, spelled backwards. 
Oh, and I've been trying to pronounce that <laughs> for my entire fucking life. And I've always been like, yeah, NFL, NFL. Um, but a lot of critics of this album said this is one of the best thrash metal albums ever. And a few years back, uh, Rolling Stone put this album on number 20 of the top 100 greatest metal albums of all time. So that's not too shabby. Here's the horror tie-in. So let's take a look at the, the title track of this one, Among the Living. It's got legs because Paramount Plus and CBS just finished a reboot of Stephen King's The Stand back in March, which is actually pretty damn good if you haven't seen it. And it's just funny going, going through all these decades. Stephen King keeps coming up. Yes. So, I mean, he really is like yeah. the king of horror. I mean, the dude's like all over the fucking place. Um, but the song itself, it's it's basically an homage to the best-selling book. Uh, Charlie Drummer and Scott Ian, they basically, Scott Ian told him that his drumming reminded him of certain themes from the stand, which I don't really understand how that can happen, but <laughs> sure. And uh, they were both huge Stephen King fans, so they wrote Among the Living. I mean, I mean, there's obvious parts of the song that are about Randall Flagg. Yeah, I'm the walking you, dude. Yeah, if you just go through the lyrics, I'm the walking yeah. dude. I can see all the world, you know, twist your mind with fear, like the whole thing. And then uh, the division and bringing everybody back together. It's all about the stand. Yeah, follow me or die. It's, it's fucking incredible. Fantastic. I almost actually picked that in a previous episode, but I, I didn't because there was something else that came up, but fantastic pick. I'm a huge fan of anthrax, huge fan of that album and that song. So, and have you ever been walking through your life trying to say Elmo Fushnik in or whatever the fuck I've been saying? My entire <laughs> life? No, I've been an anthrax <laughs> fan for a long time. So I kind of caught on because also on attack of the killer bees, there's nice fucking ballad, which I actually tried to use as my wedding song. That the one didn't go over so well. I remember so when you tried to tell Scotty in that. Yeah. 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 He didn't care. Uh, fun. No. Did you guys know that they're actually, uh, they're doing an anthology comic book series based on that album? No shit. Yeah, really? I heard about that. Yeah. 100%. Um, I actually was just listening to a podcast that had Scott Ian on it and uh, it was on bloody disgusting. They had, um, they were talking about how they're bringing back like a lot of like people from DC are coming in to write for it. Uh, Rob Zombie's even writing uh, wow. uh, one of the uh, the issues. And basically, what they did was they they took each song on the album and they gave it to somebody and they they told them to like write their own interpretation of like a comic book story based around it. And so it's going to be a collection anthology series. That's, That's why. What are they going to do about Among the Living? They're just going to redo the stand. I mean, how? <laughs> who knows, man? <laughs> Reimagine it, I guess. I mean, They're gonna have to. Yeah. Even uh, what is it? Uh, in, in the comic book world, uh, DC Metal is actually about to release uh, a collection of uh, comic books uh, based around like uh, various different bands, like Lacuna Coil. Uh, they're doing. Uh, who is it? Megadeth. You guys should definitely check that out when it comes out. I know yeah, that they're. It sounds uh, fucking dope. Yeah, they're in the process of making it right now. Awesome. All right, AJ, let's hear what your verdict is for the music round. Again, I was torn between uh, Mike and Man Crush because that the uh, the soundtrack to I know what you did last summer is iconic, and especially that cover. But I'm a I'm a I'm a kid of the '80s. Uh, I love thrash and hair metal so i and i love stephen king so i have to give it to man crush anthrax fucking rules oh yeah. 
Yeah, I can't argue with that. That's just an absolutely fantastic album. But you know what that means, Man Crush? Me and you move on to the wild card round for a one-on-one showdown to see who wins this battle. All right. All right. So I will go first since you just went. Uh, you know, my, uh, my wild card pick is another movie. And I was going to pick this one as my original movie's pick. I just didn't have the stomach in it for me to rewatch it again. And you'll know why as soon as I tell you what this is. In in the Courier-Journal out of Louisville, Kentucky, July 21st, 1977, we're going to go to a review by Scott Hammond. It says, The Hills Have Eyes is a grotesque bloodbath. The Hills Have Eyes is the title of a particularly grotesque horror film that arrived yesterday at no less than nine indoor and outdoor screens. Perhaps it's an attempt to compensate in quantity for what the film lacks in quality. In any case, the movie has more bloodshed than most people ever want to witness. Most of the scenes consist of careful depictions of open wounds. There are shootings at point-blank range, stabbings, even attempts at cannibalism, and even a few severe dog bites. Apparently, the producers of The Hills Have Eyes pride themselves on being kind to animals while wallowing in glorifying in human suffering. If their intent was to make a movie for people with similar feelings, I think they've succeeded. Rated R for relentless bloodshed that makes me even wonder why we can't have a film rated X for the on the basis of violence. So, I give you the most chilling, horrifying film in 1977, Wes Craven's The Hills Have Eyes. All right, Man Crush, what do you have for the wild card round? All right. Uh, the Hills Have Eyes is a great movie. If you can get through it. <laughs> October 30th, 1987. An alien parasite with the ability to possess human bodies goes on a violent crime spree, crime spree in Los Angeles, <laughs> stealing expensive sports cars and committing dozens of murders and robberies in the process. Kyle McLaughlin, he stars as the FBI agent or alien determined to take down that parasite. I mean, do you guys know what the movie is? Obviously, you're talking about the hidden here. Uh, But the most interesting part of this whole thing. So uh, the LAPD cop, the detective that's helping him in the movie is Michael Norrie. Michael Norrie was actually offered the role of Martin Riggs in Lethal Weapon. And he turned it down (laughs) to play this role. So if I don't win this round, his <laughs> career went for naught. Wow. All right, AJ. I guess that's over to you for your final verdict on this game. Uh, I am I am so sorry, man, crush. <laughs> <laughs> don't be sorry to me, but Mr. Nori, he needed it. Yeah. <laughs> just, just as though he lost to Mel Gibson, I got to give this to Mark. <laughs> He didn't even lose to him. They offered it to him, and he was like, "No, nah, I'm doing the, I'm doing the hidden." No, it's probably better. It's probably <laughs> better because yeah, I can't imagine it without no without Mel Gibson. It it Absolutely. just doesn't work, especially that haircut. That haircut that every single person spawned off of that. Jerry Seinfeld held on to that as long as physically possible. It was like the blowout mullet kind of. Oh, it was just it was like the action back. mullet. Yeah, no was, one could pull it off better than. Uh, Better than Gibson's, Mel Gibson. Yeah, Gibson's didn't even look like, uh, yeah, Swayze too. Their mullets didn't look like 
like whack mullets. They looked no. like action mullets. Like there was a purpose. Those guys were gods in the eighties. <laughs> and then you had guys like Howie Mandel, who kind of had that semi curl mullet. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was that, that was bizarre. Yeah, but in all honesty, the Hills Have Eyes fucking wins that one because <laughs> it's just even. I'm a massive fan of the remake. Like I love the original Wes Craven one. Don't get me wrong. I've got a lot of merchandise upstairs from the original one, but hands down, that was one of the best grotesque remakes like ever next to the evil dead remake. It was hard. As soon as he said the Hills have eyes, I was like, yeah, it's over. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, should I change my pick to lost boys? Yeah. I was going to pick it in the movies round, but then I saw kingdom of the spiders and I just adore that movie. Just because of the ending. Again, not going to spoil it. Go check it out. Really cool film. But yeah, Hills of Eyes is just a tough watch. I just didn't have it in my guts to sit through all the uh, rape and dismemberment yet again. Oh, it's rough. It's a fucking (laughs) rough time, man. You need like a few days to yourself after watching. That's what makes it so... (laughs) Either one. It doesn't matter. shower afterwards. You do. There you go, Mark. (laughs) Oh, there we go. The sequel is terrible, though. Awful. Absolutely so awful. Yeah. So bad. Either Dude, sequel. Yeah, either one. I mean, they're both terrible. Um, so you, I lost. Whatever. We'll move on. Uh, so. <laughs> I'm Dude, sorry, Matt. You know you cannot compete with the Hills. No, I could. No, there's, there's certain ones when people throw them out. You're just like, oh, yeah. fuck. Like, yeah, if you're playing Pogs, that's the slammer. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what am I going to What am it's I going to bring to the table? Michael Berryman slammer. <laughs> Yeah. The only thing that might save it is Last House on the Left, but even then, no. Maybe Cannibal Holocaust, but no. Oh, man. Maybe Beaches. <laughs> beaches. Yeah. That's pretty beaches. Dark. Beaches. Did you say Beaches? Beaches. <laughs> that is a scary movie. That's a dark oh, it one. Is. Dude, tell us about Werewolves. Like, tell us about the music. Like, I, I listened to a bunch of your shit after Steph sent it to me. I love it. Like, a lot of your covers are fucking badass Fantastic. um but your original stuff like wasteland yeah just the beginning dude that dude shreds like it's great talk, oh yeah my guitar player jeremy is oh, just, just an awesome amazing. dude like one of these times you gotta have both of us on here because that kid is a like laugh riot like he yeah, makes me seem tan- yeah he's awesome um no wasteland uh it you know if you've seen the video right yeah insane yeah. Who did all that's what we were talking about. Like your production quality and your marketing for all your shit is crazy. So good. Thank you. Who's Um, doing all this stuff? Are you doing all this? One of my best friends, uh, his name is uh, John Volpine and he uh, has this company called uh, glass dagger film co. And he's done quite a lot of like videos for other bands and stuff like that. But John and I have always had this like strong bond over just like dark horror. And just kind of like him and I kind of clash when it comes to like, I always want to push a little more comedy into our stuff. And he wants to push more blood and guts. And we kind of end up meeting in this like beautiful, like slasher meets comic book kind of like little love triangle. Like Creep Show 2. Exactly. <laughs> or Evil Dead 2. Oh, yeah. Yes. And that's the whole thing is like, we, we're. You'll see, like, as these next few videos roll out, like, I'm pretty much taking everything and 
in a creep style in a uh, uh, Tales from the Dark Side and a Twilight Zone kind of uh, anthology of world building within itself. So each music video that's coming out, like Wasteland, Wasteland, you can market so much stuff off of that. Like you can make action figures of the pig killer. You could turn that into a comic book. You can, you know, continue that story if you want to. And right. so one of the things I, I we, we came together and started to do is we were just kind of sitting down thinking about like the kind of stuff that we want to watch, you know, and stuff that would play well against the music because the music's very like aggressive in your face, but at the same time, it still has like that, that pop to it. Right. And so we want everything to kind of have like a reflection of that. Um, this new record that we uh, just conceived, uh, it's 10 songs. And the whole album itself is based off of Dante's Inferno. Yeah. And so what we're doing is each song itself is its own hellscape. So the album takes you through this journey uh, that sonically keeps changing. So it's nothing like our EP. It's closer to like what our covers are now. And so it kind of with atmospherics and introductions and outros, it kind of takes you on this little course. So we wanted the music videos on this album to pretty much have their own vibe of that hellscape. So Wasteland is based off of gluttony, you know, the land of shit. That's why it's called Wasteland, you know, and uh, we are paying homage to like uh, Saw and we're paying homage to Texas Chainsaw Massacre and House of a Thousand Corpses and kind of doing like our own thing with this uh, like failed restaurateur pig killer who's hunting these girls to feed to the patrons of his old restaurant. And I don't know, like the next one that's coming out, uh, it's our, it's a song called Fall With Me and it's got like a completely different vibe. It's dropping in uh, June. And uh, Fall With Me is kind of like more of our radio-ish single, I would, I guess you would call it. It's, it's a lot more singing than screaming. Dude, I was going to ask you that. Like, how you, I mean, you talk fine. Your voice doesn't sound raspy or anything. How the fuck do you keep your voice from dying? I just talk for an hour and I'm like, <laughs> uh, to be, uh, to be honest with you, um, I used to just blow out my voice left and right. And I had to go and take vocal training. So I took about two years worth of vocal training. And now I, I kind of changed my diet around to kind of, uh, hear to my voice like if i know i have a show coming up i'll like stay away from dairy and stuff like that uh and then i warm up about 45 minutes before we uh even get to practice so this way like you know i'm nice and loose uh only warm liquids for the day and then uh i have this portable vocal nebulizer it uh it pumps like saline solution onto my throat and what that does is like it hydrates and gets rid of all like the uh the mucus that's on on your vocal folds and from doing that whole routine, like I can sing and scream for like hours. Like you guys haven't even heard shit with Wasteland. Like this album, it's it's so diverse. There's songs on there that there's literally no screaming. There's acoustic songs where there's literally uh, all singing. Like there, there, there's something on this album for everybody. Uh, and it's... It's such a wild ride. Like, I wish I could just show everybody right now. Like, if, if I could, I would drop it. Dude, you can't, like, you can right now. I'm going to, like, this hasn't been done in, like, a year. Probably since, like, Wax did it, maybe. Yeah. 
Do you want to? Do you have an acoustic guitar to blast something out? Uh, I wish no. Uh, oh, I, I don't want to. I haven't warmed up properly. I've been drinking Heineken Double Zero. <laughs> oh, jeez. That that's not a warm up. Yeah, it's not a warm up. No, no cold liquids. Or I would happily break out my acoustic. Ah, oh, dude, that would that would have been sick. Because we've never had like a metal guy do like anything live on the show before. It would be cool. Well, I um, mean, if you get if you get me and my guitar player Jeremy to come back, we'll bust out the we'll premiere yeah, the acoustic song. Dude, we totally there should we do go. it again. Um, Fantastic. But you were talking about your next single and all that stuff. Yeah. Continue. So the next like, single kind of has like a different vibe to it. It has more of like a a dark, eerie kind of almost like romantic. It's based off of uh, lust. So in like true fashion, we wrote a song that's literally about like just it's just about fucking. But the presentation nice. of the song, song. is sounds like creepy love and it's just such a smooth kind of song that goes into like this just absolute like punchy fucking bridge punchy fucking outro and the video itself we've based it around kind of like almost like a corpse bride kind of vibe so the music video is about uh this guy whose wife uh dies and he becomes uh depressed and starts getting delusional and he stops taking his medication and he starts having all these like crazy thoughts. So he goes and he digs up his uh, dead wife to have one last night on earth with her. And he's kind of like living in his delusions of uh, reenactments of when she was alive until he takes his own life. And yeah, the whole music video takes you through that whole ride. That's so is there any continuity between like Wasteland and like this one and the next nope. one? And it's all, they're all going to be separate. So that's they're all, all separate. Gotcha. Honestly, uh, on the EP, we tried to do, uh, if you go back and look at our YouTube, there's two videos. Uh, one's called uh, Torn to Shreds and the other one is called Just Calm Down. And so Torn to Shreds and Just Calm Down were supposed to be like this three part story. So basically this guy gets attacked by a werewolf. Uh, he turns, he kills his, uh, his girlfriend. Um, and then he goes and he murders all of his friends. Uh, you don't know why yet. In the third act, what was supposed to happen was it was supposed to connect that he was, he murdered the friends as a ritualistic sacrifice to bring her back from the dead and lift his curse but we never got a chance to film the third video so it just ends on a to be continued and i'm so fucking pissed about it <laughs> someday i'm gonna go back and i'm gonna finish it for just fuck's sake and i don't care about continuity because i literally lost like 50 60 pounds throughout the since the band first started to now damn wow. So like my weight fluctuates throughout this video and the first video torn to shreds, we shot it a year apart. Like parts of it are shot a year apart. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then that's crazy. we actually shot parts of the first one uh, torn to shreds. And then we shot just calm down. Like two days later, we finished all of just calm down and then pieces a year later of torn to shreds so it was a clusterfuck that's why i'm sticking with its own thing one thing building this whole thing out 
Gotcha. Yeah. Well, it makes sense now, but I'm glad you you guys are doing that because I feel like we talked about this a couple episodes back where I think it was one with Andre. We were talking about, you know, like uh, music videos in the nineties and everything. And they were so epic and everything was about the music video. And I feel like we got a, away from that for a long period of time. Now it seems like it's starting to get back together. Like yeah. with that, that whole weekend thing that I sent you that, that video yesterday, like, it seems like everyone's doing like these big things again, like in videos and they're almost like movies. So that's awesome. Do you see the one that's like a bank heist? No, the one I, no. I watched last night was uh, it was the one where he had I have an HD monitor and he has like this prosthetic on his face. And dude, it's yeah. grotesque. I was no, like, dude, that's there's there's one uh, weekend video. I can't fucking remember the single to save my life, but there's a video that it's a first person bank heist. And it's wow. the fucking craziest thing. It looks like a first person version of Heat. Oh, that's like wild. the end of Heat. I'm not like a huge fan of his, but like some songs, like the newer ones with like that 80s synth sound to it, like I, I really dig. So I, I watched that last night on here and I was like, damn, these videos are pretty fucking awesome. But I'm I'm glad you guys are doing that. You're getting back into it. And like, you know, the, that whole story thing is coming back. The, the arc and like the mini movies and things. Yeah, there's one that we did. Uh, there's a third video that we filmed. We filmed all of these videos throughout the pandemic. I don't know how we pulled them off, but we did. And uh, there's this third video that's going to come out around. Stephanie will probably kill me, but it's going to come around around September. It's going to come out a little earlier than it's supposed to drop. And um, in this video, it's uh, we did a full on parody of Wolf of Wall Street. But. I'm wearing like a demon, like a devil prosthetic on my face. If you go and scroll down on my Instagram, you'll see like stuff from the actual video. And uh, so I'm wearing like a full on foam prosthetic devil face that kind of makes me look like I'm from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but not a vampire. And uh, <laughs> we did uh, we did some of the things shot by shot from uh, Wolf of Wall Street. We got uh, an office building that we brought in like strippers and uh nice. you know we had like dudes at their desk going crazy and fighting each other and throwing money in the air uh we had a yacht that we had like some uh chicks on and i'm like throwing bottles around and stuff like that and uh then we did it was it, our whole intention was to make like a straight up like mel brooks style comedy like parody of wolf of wall street and we got a private jet like and i, I hustled all of these things and like, I'm so excited to show people this video. It's for this song called Sell Your Soul. And it, awesome. the video fits the song so well because the song itself has like kind of like a Limp Bizkit, Papa Rochi kind of vibe. So it's just cool. so hype. And it, you couldn't do horror to this video. My, our, uh, John actually pitched me an idea. We had, I had to go to somebody else for this because John's not a big comedy guy. And uh, John pitched me this idea of us doing uh, like the Belco experiment or uh, mayhem. Mm -hmm. yep. And I was just like, no, nah, dude, let's do something a little bit different. Let's not pigeonhole ourselves completely as just like an Ice Nine Kills ripoff horror band. Right, right, right. So at least you're doing other stuff. That's one thing I really liked about your music is somebody asked me earlier, well, what do they sound like? Well, it, it depends on what song, because you guys do so many different things from the metal genre but each one is kind of its own thing. It's really cool of a, a melding of the styles. I like to say that our sound is uh, if modern metalcore uh, did Coke in the 80s. Yes, <laughs> yes, definitely. You put that on the label. 
Yeah, yeah around the label. In the Studio 54 bathroom. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> With Carrot Top. Yeah. Co-written by the Bee Gees. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, dude. Well, yeah, let's set something up where we get both of you on, and we'll do a regular episode. So I think it'll, you know, there'll be so much more shit to talk about where we're not pigeonholed into just horror because it seems like you guys know all kinds of shit and you know, you, you don't want to just do horror. So we'll, no, uh, we'll I mean, do that. I love, I love horror. Don't get me wrong, but I'm also like a big, like pop culture person. I, I sweet I, comic books, movies, everything. Yeah, we'll definitely, we'll do that. But before you go, tell everybody where to find everything, give them the, your links and all that stuff. I mean, realistically, if you just went to Linktree, uh, what is it? Linktree.com slash werewolves. Everything's in there. I think it's Linktree. No, it's, L-I-N-K-T-R-E-E-L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E. Yeah, slash, slash werewolves. werewolves. Like regular yeah. way you spell werewolves. That, how the hell did you get that? That's a good one on there. Dude, we've gotten so lucky. Like our YouTube account is YouTube.com slash werewolves. Wow. Damn. That's yeah, we good. got fucking like super lucky. I mean, realistically, I, I'm a big Instagram person. I don't really use Twitter much and I don't really use uh, like Facebook that often. Like I'm uh, I pretty much just mostly stick to Twitter, uh, uh, to Instagram. So if you just go to Instagram uh, uh, at werewolves underscore Florida, like there's a link right there in the bio that'll take you to everything. All of our music, all of our videos, all of our social media accounts, just one stop shop, you know? I mean, Stephanie wants me on TikTok, but yeah. I, I'm too—I'm too fucking old to get TikTok. Exactly. That's yes. how I feel about TikTok, bro. It's—it's it's way, way below me. My wife's always trying to like teach me how to do TikToks, and it, the second I see her start holding things and selecting things, I'm like, I want to jam an action figure into my nose until my brain <laughs> falls apart. That would be a TikTok. That would probably people would probably watch that. I am—I'm literally ten years too old. Like yeah. if I was 10 years younger, I'd be all about this shit. I'd be fucking doing, I'd be doing a TikTok right now in between you guys going through your little stories. I would have been over here just like all up in that shit. <laughs> you ever watch people like, especially my daughter's 14 and I notice every once in a while, like her and her friends will be like just standing around and they just like, just start doing some fucking weird thing. I'm like, what? The f There's no music. There's nothing going on. They'll just be like pouring a water and be like, yeah. And then they later on, whatever trending song, they put that trending song over it and then they get 14,000 views. Maybe you should go to TikTok. Yeah. Right. Meanwhile, I post like, don't get me wrong. I posted a couple things on TikTok, but like, if you go to our TikTok, it's literally like, oh yeah, that's what I expected. It's the laziest fucking TikTok. <laughs> it's just like clips of the videos. Yeah. It's a sad, desperate old man trying to do TikTok. <laughs> go to my YouTube yeah, I hear you. I feel the same way. But, dude, thanks again for coming on. I appreciate the loss, and uh, we'll be in touch. <laughs> yeah, dude, I'm going to add you after this. All right, sweet, man. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm totally down for this Friday the 13th thing. Fuck yeah. Hey, guys, <laughs> it was great. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to do this again. All right, sweet. Me Thank either. You. Take care, man. Have a great night. Have a good night. See you. Bye. All right, Duelers. Well, I guess we're going to end this episode right here. But don't worry. If you've missed an episode, you can always go to DuelingDecades.com and subscribe to it on whatever your favorite platform is. And you can find all of the links right in the episode notes right below. 
So until next time, duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Podcast New York. Podcast New York. Be heard.